Have you tried Music to Code By yet? Well, why not? Here's a comment Joe left on the website. This is also great music to mow by. I like listening to music while doing yard work to help the monotony of it seem less tedious. This past summer, I started listening to these tracks while doing yard work, and they worked great! I could let the music play in the background without focusing on it, and it seemed to help me concentrate on getting through my tasks. Thanks, Joe. And you know, now you can download the entire 13-track collection. That's over five and a half hours of music to code by for only 39 bucks. Check it out at musictocodeby.net. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And this is the first show that we have recorded uh, in a long time. In the better part of a month, yeah. Yep. This is what happens when you get a little far ahead. We got we need a lot of shows at NDC. This was supposed to be an NDC show. Right, right. And um, basically, the, a lot of things have happened in my world. I threw a festival for the first time. I threw a conference. Nice. Yeah, it's called Keto Fest at KetoFest.com. My first one. We actually were successful. We broke even. And uh, we had 238 people come from all over the world to eat uh, meat and bacon. 100 pounds of bacon we served. <laughs> and talk about the science of low carb. There you go. Yeah. So I'm not going to belabor that. Just uh, go check it out at ketofest.com if you're interested. But but first, before we get started with Elle, uh, we have this little thing we call Better Know a Framework. Awesome. <laughs> All right, dude, what do you got? So if you remember from all of those, there's a handful of shows that we did at NDC where I was talking about all the cool uh, plugins for Xamarin that James Montemagno has developed. He has made many. Yes. And so this is another one. It's an in-app billing plugin for Xamarin and Windows. Oh, cool. So it queries item information, purchase items, restore items, and more. That's... That's pretty much the simple explanation, but you can go get it at NuGet um, or just, you know, this is show 1469. So, you know the plan. Go to 1469.pwop.me and it's also on our website, linked on our website. Cool, dude. Go James. Yeah. He's still cranking that stuff out. He's crazy. He is crazy and we love him. Yeah. All right, man. Who's talking to us today? I dipped into the Wayback Machine here because we have just not done enough shows on accessibility. Yeah, I know. And this goes all the way back to 2012, show 761. So I'm thinking almost exactly half a show, 700 shows ago, right? Wow. So yeah, this was the show we did with uh, Jerome Hulsher when we were talking about accessible web applications. And Richard Garside, who I believe we've had on as a guest, huh. but have never sent a mug, said... Uh, and this is five years ago, admittedly. While working for an organization that took accessibility very seriously, I learned a lot about how different people's abilities affect their use of the web. Hmm. One thing I learned that surprised me was that there's a number of people who've been deaf since an early age who either struggle to read or can't read at all. The reason for this makes perfect sense when you're told most written languages are phonetic. Yeah. And if you've never heard the words, it's much more difficult to learn how to read them from the letters. Hmm. Most people are able to learn 
but it takes them longer. For those that can read but struggle, closed captions are hard to keep up with. Hmm. So I think this is why we reach the highest standard of accessibility. You have to include signer interpreting on video. Wow. So it's really, you know, reading lips and, and kills captions so forth, they sound like an answer, but only to someone who can read at the pace that someone speaks, which, face it, is fast. Right. And once upon a time, I, I went with a girl who uh, signed. She she could speak, but she part of her job was she was signing. So I learned a fair, fair bit of uh, American Sign Language. Yeah. And I'll tell you, that is an incredibly efficient language. Yeah. Like, just smart the way that it works. We should all be so clever to build an efficient language like that. So uh, I totally get it. ASL makes a lot of sense in that scenario. So, Richard, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com. And if we read your comment on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet. We convert them to interpretive dance. (laughs) (laughs) And that brings us to our guest today, L. Waters, evangelizing the growth of universal design and lean accessibility as best practices within large organizations. L. works on behalf of Simply Accessible with startups and enterprise-level clients to build the foundation needed to integrate accessibility into every facet of corporate culture. She's worked firsthand with design, content, development, and testing teams to create agile, scalable methods to ensure more inclusive user experiences. She's seen amazing things happen where the user's needs are the primary driver for change and innovation in large-scale digital projects where teams meet and even exceed their specific product goals and where companies leap ahead of their competition, all by putting accessibility first. Elle has a passion for all things agile and a fascination with emerging technology and a healthy fear of zombies. I think that's only sensible, really. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome, Elle. Thank you so much for having me. What do you think of the the comment that uh, Richard read? Um, Is it really feasible to have, uh, you know, to drop video of a sign language interpreter into into everything that you put on YouTube? Uh, I think it depends on the industry and what kind of um, audience you have, to be honest. I do think it's um, rapidly evolving and changing. As with most things, with the mobile moment and adoption of mobile technologies, Mm. texting has become a really popular medium for um, different people in the deaf community. And Mm -hmm. sign language is actually, much like Braille, becoming a bit of a literacy issue where that's becoming less common. So I think that with everything having to do with support um, for an inclusive approach, it always starts with users first. And so understanding exactly whether or not this would be measurably impactful in a positive way for people is the first question. And the more you collaborate with people on finding that solution, the more likely you are to be successful. So um, that's a roundabout way of saying it depends. Depends, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome as to any, the club. As any user experience professional um, should tell you, yeah. we should all wear tattoos with that. But yeah. I do think that there's a huge point that was made that I think is really valuable. And I think it can even kind of surface to a higher principle, which is things that we assume are our primary format may not 
be someone else's primary format. And That's oftentimes you'll hear words like um, alternate format, hmm. and it may very much be someone else's primary format. And so that's the consideration overarchingly to, cons- to think about when you're building things is that you want to be able to find multiple ways to accomplish the same thing to get the same information without requiring and, and preferencing one over another too much so. And I think that one of the things Richard was commenting on there was that at closed caption speed, so at the speed of a typical hearing person speaking, it's fat challenging for someone who consumes that information differently to keep up. Where a text message, because you can look at it as long as you want to. Plus, I think that the the language of texting is terser and a, and a narrower set of words, uh, probably way more consumable. I agree. You've probably both had this experience where you're watching, you know, CNN or something and there's closed captioning on and you find that the closed caption gets so far behind that eventually they just skip over a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah, it's true. And texting is a predictable medium. And I think that's a really good point is the content is really in some way you're usually at least a participant in it. So you're an author. So half of that time is spent crafting a message as much as reading it. So it is definitely a different kind of medium. I think that um, usually whenever we're working with teams, we like to look at it. And this is one reason why we're such big fans of Agile. We like to look at things in in an iterative way. So Mm. At the very least, have a text transcript of whatever video and multimedia product that you're putting out, then layer upon that and think in terms of closed caption, and then iterate afterwards and think about and find out from your users if sign language would be a good option. Hmm. I know that there's a lot of organizations who have made that commitment. And I'm sure given the way that people tend to respond as brand loyalists whenever their needs are considered, that that's probably really reinforced their understanding of thinking about other people's needs. I wonder if we're not on our way, or maybe this already exists, to some sort of animation that interprets text into ASL. It's definitely in the works. There's a lot of innovative technologies. Um, so there is, and I'll send, I'll send you a link you can post as well. There's a technology right now where it's an uh, tablet application and it's reading those gestures mm. and then it speaks aloud the sign language gestures that it reads. Wow. The difficulty so is text. The, yeah. Yeah. That's sign to, to text. text to I was just about to say text yeah. to sign is a much more complicated endeavor. Sure. And there's a lot of subtleties that are beyond when someone is using sign that's yeah. outside of the hands. Right. There are facial gestures and other things like that that are cues and nuances to what's being conveyed in ASL and other sign language, uh, other sign languages, I would assume too, even though I don't know them. But I think there's an opportunity for a service there that somebody can, you know, do a, a green screened ASL. Uh, version of your, you know, video of, you know, uh, any kind of YouTube that, Mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's definitely a room for a service there. I think it would be fascinating to explore. Uh, I have been keeping up with a lot of AI stuff because I've been doing some talks and stuff in that space. And uh, some of the latest video animation where they were literally taking spoken word and just turning the uh, expressions on for that. Like there's tech coming. The funny, what makes me laugh is, of course, this is going to be solved just about the time that people aren't all that worried about it anymore. Hmm. <laughs> there are just more efficient Perhaps. ways to communicate. Yeah. It's incredible. A lot of a lot of innovation. Um, there's kind of a, a running joke, at least among me and my friends, that innovation really comes from three industries: from the gaming industry, 
from pornography and from accessibility. And so when you look at it, there's a lot of digital innovation that comes out of that. And so there's a lot of things that we depend on in our mobile devices that actually originated with an accessibility need. So given the way that things are going with AI, the way that things are going with VR and AR, and the understanding that digital is a space that's really a lot of people's opinion, a place of public accommodation, that people should be able to do things equally and without being locked out of an experience. It's going to be a pretty amazing next several years. It's already been pretty amazing so far. If you think about the operating systems that people use, Windows, Mac being the primary mm-hmm. two, what, what, what grade do you give them for their accessibility <laughs> features? It's a little bit apples to oranges. I will say that in... With regards to commitment to built-in accessibility features, Windows has always been very good about document accessibility. Mm. So Microsoft Word, Excel, those kinds of things for applications. But Apple has made tremendous strides from an inclusive design perspective. So more than just access, but really thinking holistically about the user experience and building in voiceover as technology, screen reading technology in both desktop and in mobile devices kind of sets them ahead a bit in that way. They were also very quick to adopt switch technology in iOS and so those kinds of considerations, I think that what we're seeing as a, as a company, that when we're talking about mobile technologies, um, typically iOS definitely meets the needs of people with mobility impairments and people with visual impairments a little right. bit um, better. Yeah, I, I had never used any of the accessibility features, but I think people who have, pe- I, I think people like me have stumbled across hitting a key by accident and all of a sudden Windows <laughs> is talking to you. Yeah. yeah. Now, with that said, Windows and Microsoft are are making, they're making some tremendous strides and they are very committed. And I think that it's more uh, unusual these days for us to find organizations who don't have, especially those who are software uh, builders, who don't have some kind of approach and understanding um, beyond just the human rights aspect of it. It's really smart for business to be more inclusive. If you're talking about 15% of the population, it's kind of foolhardy to not consider that and still try and build for, you know, older versions of Internet Explorer, for example. Yeah. I remember, um, this is just an old story from an old guy. I remember having a friend who was legally blind and, you know, had to walk with a cane and everything and sitting and watching him using his Apple IIe and just absolutely flying. His, key, his yeah. keyboard skills were amazing, and he could read any part of the screen. Of course, it was just text, you know, mm-hmm. but sure. he could do anything and and kill it. And he ended up running an ISP in uh, the days of modems and early days of internet. Yeah, it's pretty astounding to think about um, the way that human beings are so adaptable, and the average screen reader's speed is almost unintelligible to most people who are sighted users who don't use a screen reader because people just adapt to it. And the way that they consume information, people who use screen readers on a daily basis is actually very different because it is reading the document object model and it's looking directly at the source code. Mm. It tends to be a very linear experience and obviously different different types of interactions require different kinds of exploration versus just transactional, but it does change the entire mental model. And we found this through a lot of our usability testing 
obviously a company named Simply Accessible, it is what we do. It's what we think about all day long. And so we have a, a pretty expert level understanding about how people with disabilities use the web, but we're consistently surprised and educated through usability testing. And so we found that to be true at times. Um, just as an example, um, when sites have gone responsive, that's actually changed some of the way that people are interacting with websites. Mm-hmm. So some last year or it may have been the year before, two years ago. Yeah, it was two years ago. Two years ago, we were doing usability testing for some of our airline clients, and they had responsive sites. And we found that of the eight participants that we had tested, three of them who were screen reader users did not use a monitor at all because they lived at home. They had no need to be able to display visually the content that they were consuming. Ah. But what this did at the operating system level is it threw the site into a mobile breakpoint So the people were using desktop technologies like JAWS or NVDA, and they were actually interacting with the mobile version of the site, which totally blew our minds and really caused us to rethink which technologies we need to consider and how people will be interacting with content is really an open-ended thing with the level of device independence and user control that we have now among the average person, people could be putting together a whole system of things that there's no way that you would know. So you need to consider, you know, inclusivity pretty much throughout the entire process. You mentioned a couple of things, JAWS and NDDS or NDDA. NDDA. Those Those are two very popular screen reader technologies. Um, JAWS is the equivalent in some ways you could consider it. It does pair best with Internet Explorer. Mm. Um, It's um, older. It's been around longer, built by a company um, called Freedom Scientific, now owned by VFO. Mm. And NVDA pairs best usually with Firefox as far as compatibility. And it also tends to have that kind of personality as well. It's very um, crowdsourced, research heavy, um, standards driven, and um, free. Is there <laughs> such a thing as a console window text based web browser? You mean as in like gaming consoles? Well, yeah, I'm just thinking of a console, a, a standard console app in Windows or, you know, the, mm-hmm. you drop to a command prompt. Windows has Narrator, and so there's that, but it's it's not as well adopted as some other screen reading technologies. And mm. in general, I think it's because people adopt screen readers when, if they're younger and they um, have either an event or they're born with blindness and need screen readers, they, it happens at an earlier age. So we're talking about sort of a, a bit of a brand commitment that people make. And when you say screen reader, you're, th- you're saying they use the web, they use the browser and then this thing reads it to them, right? Not instead yes. of a, instead of a complete text-based solution. Yeah. Well, it's at an operating system level. And that was the next thing I was going to mention. Wow. So whatever somebody uses needs to be able to handle start, you know, being able to work with email programs, yeah. applications on the desktop, that kind of thing. Right. So it's beyond just browsing or beyond just web. But it strikes me that like, uh, you know, tools like Refactor and, uh, and Code Rush and stuff, you learn one. And you get reflexive mm-hmm. at it, and you're going to be stay incredibly loyal to that. It is your set of reflexes right. now. That's typically the case. Um, oftentimes, we found people who use assistive technologies use either a combination of them, or they may switch back and forth between two different ones, depending on the effectiveness of it to do a particular thing. Hmm. Hmm. So, and there are a lot of people who use screen magnification software along with a screen reader, for example, because they may be low vision, but it's just much easier if they have, you know, increasing and increasing text size 
you know, at some point, it's good to layer those solutions on top of each other. Hmm. Are, are there new techs coming down the path? I'm thinking specifically there was HTML5 standards around tagging stuff that make life a little easier for this kind of tech? Um, well, the good news is what people generally with disabilities need has been around since the web. Right. The bad news is that we love to break those rules. <laughs> so <laughs> I think that really more than anything, when we do testing for a team and we're trying to identify what gaps exist on their site or their application or their native application, yeah. more often than not, about 60 to 70% of the time, that what we're pointing out are things that are basically best practices. So Again, the good news is that if you're a real student of your craft and you look to aim for web standards and coding best practices and you think in terms of semantic structure and progressive enhancement, you're actually going to be doing um, a lot to make your applications and your sites more accessible. Um, there's always going to be a gap in between newest technologies and assistive technologies trying to catch up to those, those newer technologies, mm -hmm. but that gap is pretty small now. Hey guys, hold that thought right there while we take a moment to hear from our sponsor. This episode of .NET Rocks is made possible in part by Windows on the Google Cloud Platform. You may not know this, but the Google Cloud Platform supports Windows Server 2008, 2012, and 2016. It also supports SQL Server versions 2012, 2014, and 2016 standard web and enterprise editions with high availability. You can deploy your ASP.NET Windows apps to Compute Engine or your ASP.NET Core apps to App Engine or Container Engine. That's Google's hosted Kubernetes environment. .NET and .NET Core libraries are there for all 200-plus Google.com and cloud services in NuGet, led by John Skeet of Stack Overflow fame. But what about Visual Studio integration? Oh, it's there. You can use Visual Studio to manage your GCP resources and deploy your existing apps. You get stack driver logging, error reporting, and tracing support for .NET and .NET Core. PowerShell commandlets for GCP, which run on Windows and Linux. And a great set of partners to bring your Windows and .NET workloads to GCP, including Capgemini, Nudesic, and Magenic. So go to gcp.netrocks.com and get your free trial today. And you're listening to .NET Rocks. Richard and I are here with L Waters talking about accessibility for UX. And uh, just a, I love where this conversation is going. I mean, it started with, you know, how can we help <laughs> blind people and deaf people? And now we're talking about, you know, if you code for accessibility first, you're going to help everybody, not just your, yep. your, your challenged people, but um, everybody who uses your app. Uh, do you see that happening? Um, where I mean, that's in your bio that uh, you you make you see yeah. amazing things happen. Yeah, it's a pretty aspirational bio, but it is based off of real experiences. Um, we find that companies who adopt this not just as uh, a checklist, but really as a way of being able to increase the value of what they're producing for their customers, that it opens doors that otherwise wouldn't have been opened. So mm -hmm. one thing we've discovered through usability testing is that people with disabilities will find something like a problem with a website 
uh, quicker and the problem is more pronounced for them, but they hmm. find a lot of the same problems. And so Susanna Gonzalez in Smashing Magazine once wrote about designing for the extremes and it's very similar. And you think about that, about people who are aging into any kind of impairments, people might have temporary disabilities. Hmm. And the idea is if you design for the extremes, you meet the needs of the many. And so yeah. it just creates a much more expansive, inclusive, um, and usable application. Fantastic. Yeah, very cool concept. It, we're not just talking about the web now, though, right? Like, obviously, right. mobile, sort of traditional desktop apps. Is, are mm -hmm. the, is the tooling even remotely similar? I mean, responsive web design seems very distinct to the web. Yeah, so responsive, obviously, they're very distinct. So what ends up happening is when we're working with teams on native applications or kiosks or wearable technology, all of which are encompassed in the work that we do, we typically, a lot of the user experience best practices are principles about users. And so that carries over from one kind of interaction to the other. And how you meet those needs, the technique itself might vary according to the technology. Mm -hmm. But a lot of these principles really are able, if you start thinking about inclusive design and how to build something inclusively, you're able to apply those same questions to the other kinds of interactions and interfaces that you build for. So it sounds to me like I just need to include some... Uh folks with maybe vision or hearing impairments as part of my user experience testing and generally everything will get better. Yes, you'll definitely identify the need. And then as far as the technique, there's a lot of great publications out there. And honestly, I, I would say that probably um, a list apart is one of the best places if you want to visit somewhere and see really great articles about accessibility hmm. that really align to web standards. Another place, of course, is on Twitter if you use the hashtag A11Y, which is basically because there's 11 letters between A and Y and accessibility, much like internationalization. Ah. If you um, follow that hashtag, you'll find some great tips as well. And the, the A11Y project is an mm -hmm. interesting collection of stuff. Yeah, that's a bit of crowdsourcing. And um, so it's really interesting. Another really great thing to look at is Shopify is doing some amazing stuff um, with regards to the idea of design systems and accessibility. There's some areas that they're still working on, but the principles behind the way that they're building their pattern library and design system, um, having it with accessibility integrated within it is exactly the way to make this sort of scalable and sustainable. So like OWASP for security, th yeah. these are checklists for things you should be doing before you even start your testing. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. This, the sooner that you start considering it and including it, the better your success will be and the less expensive the project will be. Definitely. Now you just said the magic word, the less expensive, right? I mean, right, you know, this, exactly. is, this is what the manager hears when we say we want to, add, you know, put in the budget for accessibility. How does that translate into actual dollars saved or more users gained? Right. And one of the first questions is how, how soon into the project have you started working with those kinds of considerations and how repeatable is what you're building going to be. So yeah. uh, the first project is always going to be a certain amount of an investment when you're trying to standardize something. Mm -hmm. But if just this is why accessibility can save money because it provides sort of skin in the game for people to really adhere to a pattern library. Yeah. And that makes operational stuff so much smoother. Yeah. Retrofitting it is the hard part. I've, I've certainly done that with, 
like going multilingual, retrofitting existing assets multilingual is just super hard to see an ROI on that. Yeah, we've had this experience on the show when there's somebody giving developers advice. Maybe it's about a methodology or maybe it's about, um, you know, something to further their career or some new tool that they want to use or whatever. If you can turn it into, and if we do this, this is how much money we'll save. You know, if you can make an argument for either you're saving money or you're increasing your user base. In this mm -hmm. case, it's probably both, I imagine. I mean, that's that's something you can take to the bank. Absolutely. And in the lean accessibility workshop that I do, it's really pretty much because I love combining the two things that um, I'm most in love with in the development community, and that is agile ways of thinking and doing things and accessibility. And so in that, there's a whole section where we start really unpacking what value means, because obviously agile is really about providing more value for the end customer, whether that be your business stakeholder or their customers. Mm. And, and there's different ways to define value from commercial value, operational value, customer value, and really looking at each one of those and finding where accessibility can be an advantage to that is really that area. What I was talking about as far as being a catalyst for these things, because it, it can drive a lot of innovation within an organization. It's a lot like the way when you see companies go through an agile transformation and they're more than just kind of going through the ceremonies and going through the motions, but they're really starting to think about the way to provide the most value. A lot of um, bloat for lack of a better word, really kind of falls away and teams operate much more productively. Interesting. Yeah. They, is that just because it gets more complex that you try and skim that bloat away or because the accessibility pieces really focus in? I'm just trying to figure out why this works this way. Well, accessibility is often brought to a company because they have maybe some external pressure to do something, or it may be a combination of that plus their desire to be more expansive and understand how to appeal to more of a customer base. Mm -hmm. But in order for accessibility to be successful, there are certain requirements to be able to put into place. And one has to do with the idea of standardizing. And that standardization is something that kind of drives a lot of that streamlining of effort. So when you look at that, plus the fact that ultimately accessibility is about people and people are really what agile tends to focus on. So right. it's able, we're able to go through a prioritization and business value kind of exercise. And that means that there's a lot of, um, a lot of, tendencies and practices that are a bit old fashioned in the way that accessibility used to be sort of forced onto teams, that's not really applicable anymore. And so really looking at even minimum viable product with regards to accessibility and prioritizing what is the greatest user impact and preferencing those first. And then knowing that Agile promotes iteration, meaning that you can go back and continue to improve on what you're providing for people. I think that's the just the momentum that they each give each other. Awesome. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yeah. It's time for us to figure out how to include more .NET Rocks listeners and keep out those meddling zombies at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> how can we work on exclusion, not inclusion? <laughs> <laughs> it's actually time to give away a D-Experience subscription from DevExpress to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. 
Become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. And check out their new DevExtreme React Grid, built from the ground up to fully support all the cool features that come with React, like the virtual DOM, state controllers like Redux, etc. And it supports master detail, sorting, grouping, paging, and editing. You can check it out and test it for free by getting it from GitHub. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial of DevExpress Universal at devexpress.com slash superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is George Bellity. Congratulations, George. Yeah. Golf clap for you, sir. George just won the D-Experience subscription, a big pile of awesome from our friends at DevExpress, just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And you know, if you don't know what that is, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors, and every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you got to sign up to win. We also like to ask our guests, Elle, if you had $5,000 <laughs> to spend today on technology, what would you buy? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Didn't see that I, uh, one coming. <laughs> yeah. So I think about this a lot, actually. Um, so I'm a huge fan of virtual reality. And I'm also a pretty big geek. Otherwise, we wouldn't be having this conversation, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. And I love... Uh, I love the technologies that are coming out with VR to the point. I'm also a big gamer. And my biggest problem is that um, exercise is boring, but gaming is awesome. Yeah. And so I look at the Virtuix Omni um, positioning where you have those big wheels, those donuts that you strap to yourself with a belt and you're able to run in place and turn. The Omni Tread. Like, oh, yeah. 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 So like, say, yeah, say you're turning around. Well, that wouldn't fill up $5,000 because now thanks to technology and an innovation, it's getting cheaper and cheaper. So I was thinking about this and thinking what the next evolution of that, whatever it is, they haven't released anybody. That's really what I want. And I don't know if that means um, Star Trek's holographic, you know, kind of floor where mm. I can basically have a whole room. But to me, an immersive virtual reality experience that was top of the line would be amazing that's what i would choose fantastic awesome i would like to you know you could get one of those virtuex omnis and paint your room at the same time probably <laughs> spend five grand yeah the, i think the basic package now is like 1200 bucks you still I need know. the computer and the vr headset and and you know some other bits piece you'll get through five grand there I think so. Yeah. I'm putting it on my wish list for Christmas and just kind of putting a big hint all over the house for my husband. So <laughs> we'll see how that works. <laughs> we, need, we need a room dedicated to this stuff. Yeah. Yes. And that Omnitread does require specific shoes, right? Like it's Yeah, I saw that. It's got little it's shoes that have really cool like touch sensors underneath it, but it also allows you to be able to run without like completely busting yeah. your chin open mm -hmm. <laughs> running into it's, things. It, it's slippy. They they've got just enough traction, but they slide on the yeah. surface that you're on. So it's like it's an interesting combination of stuff. I kinda wanna play Team Fortress 2 with it more than anything else, just because it's such a very run, turn, shoot kind of game. Yeah. And I would love to be able to, to do that with that. So 
I don't know. I giggle too much when I play Team Fortress 2. It's so silly <laughs> that it's very funny. It is good time to be giant, man. Yes. <laughs> well, when the Pyra video came out, I was super excited. And I actually got the I got the print of him with all the um, or her with all the rainbow, you know, like the view from Pyro's point of view. That's right. my favorite. And I really do think that the accessibility team at any organization can easily fit within Team Fortress 2 roles. So that can be another conversation we have. It's interesting to think about first-person shooters with accessibility in mind. Yeah. People do it a lot, though. It's it's a fantastic thing to, to explore. Yeah, no kidding. Like, just... Definitely, you're just going to think about it differently. Who knows? You, you know, someone, someone not sighted that's that's actually playing the game a different way. They might be completely lethal. Yeah, they usually are. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Uh, you don't even know what hits you. You know what? You know what's beyond the the sort of omni tread would be a flying harness. Would be something with hydraulics that you literally could take off the ground, or at least feel like you're you're lifting off. It may not go very far, but you don't need to. You just need to have that kinetic effect. Ah, uh, you're thinking of Kerbal, yeah. aren't you, Richard? Uh, no, no. Ker- <laughs> Ker- it, the trick with Kerbal is just to turn you directly to vomiting, right? Because you know it's what? Like, I, got, I got. The, you need a, a a interface for Kerbal to the Tesla Model S. <laughs> I drove my first Tesla this weekend. And? And it's amazing. I didn't get to open it up, but I was in the back seat when the driver hit the gas to the floor, and it felt like one of those rides at Disney where you feel like you're having an out-of-body experience. And then I remembered, oh, I am having an bo- out-of-body experience. There's my body right in the back seat, and I'm on the hook. <laughs> kind of oh. brings full, full closure to Mission to Mars, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. yeah. That's exactly what I thought it was. That was the only other time I've had experienced that many Gs. Maybe that's what gave Elon Musk the idea. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, this 4K 43-inch screen has already given me vertigo playing Kerbal. <laughs> like, I've turned around doing an orbital repair in a spacesuit and suddenly seen the planet below me and gone, Wah! and turn back, don't look out. <laughs> that is bad. Wow. Fantastic. Do you have any more stories that you can tell about um, ways in which uh, accessibility saved your bacon? <laughs> ways that accessibility saved our bacon yeah Um, just innovative ways that you've um that you've had to implement it we're just looking for stories yeah i'm trying to think of something that's like uh you know got the same kind of appeal is uh, some of this stuff is so nerdy that if i were to tell you like hey there were there was a team who really didn't think that they could create a responsive table and maintain it as a table that doesn't sound very <laughs> no, exciting. No, that's exciting <laughs> to our <laughs> listeners do you yeah, this but, is... yeah that's true well good i'm so glad so Absolutely. we had a team that we were working with and they had to launch um they were working on a pretty high profile e-commerce site and they were having to launch um, a responsive version of a table and tables actually are for tabular data. And so if you decide that you're going to be, we have a, you know, phrase just because you call it a table, if it's a div, you know, it acts like a table (laughs) and you think of it like a table, you use it like a table, make it a table. And so they kind of ushered a challenge to our team 
and said that they really didn't think that that could be made into a mobile version and still have the UI that was needed. So right. our team loves a good challenge. We love hearing that things are impossible to be made accessible. And so within the span of a couple of days, we put together something for them. And lo and behold, yes, you can create a responsive table and you can maintain all the semantic structure uh, on a desktop that you did before. We're also working on some stuff with Philips Hue light bulbs uh, that's kind of cool and mm. using that within sort of a, a teaching mechanism on teaching devs um, when they commit something that has no accessibility issues versus something that they need to look at and using the colors to be able, um, colors and haptic response in order to be able to uh, give them a kind of feedback, which is kind of fun. That's mm. exciting too. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of ways that people uh, work on this. And I think that contrary to what people sometimes think, traditionally accessibility doesn't really provide constraints as much as it is a creative focus. So we've found often that it makes really good designers, great designers, and really good developers, great developers, because it provides that challenge for them to rethink their assumptions. Yeah, it sure does. And we got to get out of this mindset of saying, you know, we're only going to be serving, you know, one or 2% of our customers if we do this. And I, I tell you, every time I see somebody who tells me their Internet Explorer requirements, I kind of laugh to myself because I think, OK, so what's that percentage again that we're building for? OK, just want to keep that in mind. Right. So. Right. And, and as we've seen, you know, when you put accessibility first, you make everybody's experience better. Yeah, by far. Yeah. Hey, Al, how much does the built-in accessibility features of Windows 10 simplify our lives as developers when we're building on the, on, for that machine? Somewhat, not much. Okay. I think more than anything that, sorry, <laughs> more than anything, uh, the most you get out of anything natively built in is with native applications. Right. So Android and iOS have a ton of accessibility built into their native controls. Mm -hmm. And so that's really where you're going to get that kind of uh, simplification and ease of use in creating something that's that's easily accessible. Um, I think it's a different challenge altogether when you're talking about at an operating system level. Although, like I said, I know Microsoft has a tremendous commitment. Um, They're constantly looking at ways that people use their, their devices, their machines, their operating system, their applications. And so when you're coming up with an application, it's really best to look at some of the documentation at the beginning, but then you're really thinking about, again, going back to user testing. And so I would say somewhat, but not a tremendous amount yet. Even for all these years, they've been building all those tools and they're always there. You know, it's, it seems interesting to me that it's just not that, it's just not that simple. Yeah. And it is, it's a process thing. Accessibility is a process and a people uh, consideration and and challenge. Whereas if it was all about technology, we could have flipped that switch a long time ago, right? Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about the moderated testing that you guys do at Simply Accessible? So we've been doing usability testing for a dozen years or so. And we found that it's uh, difficult to be able to think about it from the sort of old traditional method of usability testing, where you have a usability test lab, and you recruit people and they come into that test lab, because people with disabilities have very specific needs, and they have very 
uh, customized kinds of setups, and those are usually at home. So then the next iteration of that traditionally was to go to people's homes. But then you have a geographic constraint there, and you also it takes a lot more time, and it's a bit invasive to go mm. into somebody's house. And so our goal was to do remote testing, and we looked at some unmoderated testing options. And when we did that, we still didn't get quite the insights that we wanted. So our team really worked hard. And over the last several years, we've started doing just about with every project, we do remote moderated usability testing. We'll take about um, five to eight participants. And we have a panel of about, say, I think three to 400 people. And we also work with customers from our clients or disability advocacy groups. Mm. And so we do a lot of the same traditional usability testing, but by, because it's remote and moderated, two really great things. Um, we have video from those insights and those sessions to be able to provide for, for clients. And it's able to keep pace with an agile team. Whereas before usability test results would come back, it might be six weeks after somebody's launched something. And so for us, we're able to throw that in immediately and get that really quick feedback that we like to be able to put into somebody's backlog to be able to look at for improvements in the future. And we're really excited about the fact that now we're doing this with native applications as well. Very cool. And by moderated, I guess you mean you have some oversight. You're not mm -hmm. allowing the testers to do their own reports or something. You have uh, an intermediary between the testers and your documentation. Right. So we'll have a test script and we'll have specific goals that we've worked on with our clients of what we'd like to get more insight into. But oftentimes when people have disabilities, they may come to a hard stop on something. Yeah. And instead of that ending the, st the study, the session right there, where actually we use a lot of remote desktop sharing, we'll go in and be able to click a button, note that in the test that they weren't able to complete the task and continue with the session. Excellent. The other thing is if they have a problem, we're able to explore that and get their feedback and Instead of just user abandon the test, for example, we're able to find out exactly what's most problematic and get really detailed feedback. Fantastic. One of our most uh, exciting, I guess you could say exciting moments is we were working, one of our clients is a pretty big social media provider, and we were working with a participant who was both deaf and blind, and we were able to use the chat function in order to be able to get in, in insight from that participant, and that was wonderful. That was really um, exciting that we've gotten to that point in technology. It's pretty cool. So if they're deaf and blind, how are they getting information out of the computer? So usually people will use a combination of a screen reader and something that's called a refreshable braille device that's connected to it. And it looks a bit like a Casio keyboard. It's kind of cool. And then it's got these um, pins that dynamically raise and lower. And oh it goes, my. say, 40 to 80 characters across. Wow. And it's a very linear way to consume information, which is why we often recommend people to front load content instead of learn more about and this long string. And then finally, the different, you know, quality piece of information is at the, at the end of that string of text. We really encourage people to think in terms of what if somebody only had, you know, a split second, what is the most valuable piece of information? And part of that is in consideration for people who might be consuming it through something like a refreshable Braille device. That is amazing. It's pretty cool, huh? Yeah, yeah, I know. It's, and those are all portable. I mean, what's amazing is that people aren't stuck at home with a giant, you know, refrigerator sized piece of technology. They, they're at a point now where you can hook up a refreshable Braille device up to a mobile device. Mm. Wow. 
But I, I get that this is very personal gear. You're going to want to use your Braille device with your yeah. equipment. Everybody's well with your settings, your speed. Yeah. yeah. Very personal. And I imagine that your team in, includes everyone of every conceivable type of uh, disability so that they can, so, that, so yeah. that you don't leave any stone unturned. Yeah, it's really important for us. Um, we allow our, that's again, the beauty of Agile is that we'll try and cover everything. And then we work with our clients to prioritize based on what they understand about their users. So mm. we'll, we'll go as deep as we, as we can on understanding what challenges people have. Um, the good thing is you don't have to design and develop for uh, specific individual use cases. If you start with those best practices, then you can tweak things and minor corrections according to different user groups. So you don't have to put best used with JAWS 18, for example, on your website. If you think about sites that, fail the simply accessible test <laughs> of accessibility <laughs> are there any like very popular sites that that could really use your some usability testing that could use some usability testing yeah sure do you want me to out the specific let's people? do it with all yeah <laughs> all right this is this is the moment of the of the show where we go into the walk of shame yes. for customers now here comes these the are boss. not our clients <laughs> obviously <laughs> um <laughs> But, and I say, I say this, let me, let me preface this with, I am an avid user of this site and I use it quite a bit, Okay. but Amazon.com has some pretty terrible focus management and tab order. Whoa. It's, it's, I'm painfully empathetic to what it must be like to build a behemoth site with that many different kinds of interactions mm. and workflows and not really have time to slow down and really think from a strategic point of view about overall architecture and things like tab order. But the tab order on Amazon.com is abysmal. It's pretty bad. There will be wow. things that will jump to one side of the page, then another, skip over other content entirely. And that's tough for non-sighted keyboard users who use a screen reader. It's also pretty bad for sighted keyboard users because yeah. it's taking them to places on the page they may not even understand where the focus is at that moment. Mm. So that's probably my number one uh, egregious. Well, Facebook's um, got to be pretty awesome, right? <laughs> Actually, I will say Facebook has worked very hard over the years. They have an equal challenge of the fact that they have a site that really can't go down for maintenance, for example. So right. they really, and, and everything ultimately comes down to strategy and architecture when you want to do it properly. But they have a pretty robust accessibility team. They're very responsive. And I know quite a few people who are keyboard-only users who do pretty well at most of the core Facebook features. Um we're going to start venturing into people who are our clients, though, if we keep going down this route. Yeah. So I want to be careful because it would be easy for me to brag about our clients. I would love to, but at the same time, that sounds a little bit self-serving. So well, I have to be careful. Yeah. yeah, I was more concerned about the any of the big ones, like Amazon is yeah. a pretty big one, you know. That, and that one makes yeah. total sense to me, too, because they it's just so much stuff, Yeah, that web page. so much stuff. And there's templates, I'm sure, from an authoring environment that they have their own, you know, for vendors who want to be able to put their wares out there. There's a lot of things that they can customize, like in a content management system. Mm. And that in and of itself is a challenge to be able to, to, how much do you lock that down? How much do you require? What part of the workflow do you stop if somebody hasn't put, for example, a text equivalent on an image? And so it gets 
pretty challenging. And it's the kind of thing that this would be, this would be sort of an Olympic challenge to be able to take the existing amazon.com site and make it fully accessible. Whereas, you know, at this point, everyone's innovating, it's time and they may already be working on this in the background to to really rethink everything. Well, so much of amazon.com is generated dynamically, it's specific to you. Right. Yeah. It's almost untestable. Well, there's ways to do it. You just have to be really thoughtful and really specific about standards and categories. Mm-hmm. And I think that they really struggled when they moved their site to a more responsive layout. They made those choices like we're going to remove some content in the mobile viewport. And then people would get frustrated because they're expecting to get access to it. So then they would go to the full site instead in their mobile viewport, which is painful in and of itself, right? But then when they would try and select something, it would do a media query and throw them right back into the mobile viewport, which didn't have content Mm. that they were looking for. So that's just a usability failure. And they had some real challenges with that. So yeah, I would say Amazon's at the top of my list as far as um, sites that are very challenging. I think job application sites tend to be very difficult too, which is unfortunate given that that starts becoming almost like a discrimination point. Um, that's really tough. Yeah. And uh, I think a lot of the tech giants are doing pretty well, actually. Uh, between Google and Apple and Microsoft, I think a lot of these a lot of these guys are really seeing the need to come at it from an enterprise um, sort of architectural point of view. Microsoft has a chief accessibility officer, which is awesome. And he's really he's very invested in things. Uh, and then, you know, I think that we're definitely on the upswing on the rise, thanks to mobile adoption, which kind of requires people to think in terms of standards and flexibility. Yeah. Now, what about Gmail? How do they write? Gmail's pretty good. Uh, Google Docs still has some ways to go. Mm-hmm. But as far as all of the sort of G Suite applications, Gmail is pretty good. Um, there's a lot of shortcut keys within Gmail that may be um, at times in conflict with what somebody has already set up as shortcut keys on uh, his or her screen reader, for example. But from a uh, keyboard accessibility, they have a pretty dedicated accessibility team as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, they've made huge strides with Google Docs in particular. And I hope that Google Slides is next on the list because there's some things that are really tough to reach with a keyboard with that. But generally speaking, we see improvements from time to time um, with a lot of these large applications. It's not that the it's not that these teams aren't making efforts. It's that it's difficult, I think, once you've built something to retroactively go back and try and remediate at that large of a scale, which is why we say build in from the beginning. Right. Yeah, that's been a recurring theme here. It's like, if you've got any (laughs) thoughts to accessibility at all, get started at the beginning on it. Yeah, you will be so grateful afterwards. And I mean, it really is not, uh, it's not very much about the kind of technology stack you choose. Um, Our team has written two really robust articles and tutorials on Angular. We work with teams who work with React um, you know, we help people wow. build their own sort of JavaScript libraries around more complex interactions. And none of that is really a, a detractor from being able to make things more accessible. A lot of it has to do with being uh, thoughtful about it in the beginning, because there's a lot of interaction patterns that get established that engineers have to kind of inherit after the fact. Yeah. 
Makes sense. Well, Elle, this has been a great hour. And uh, wow, I learned a lot. And I'm sure our listeners did too. <laughs> Thanks for spending it with us. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, I was so excited to see you guys at NDC Oslo. Are you going to be at NDC Sydney too? I will be, but uh, I will have been by the time the show is published. Yeah. <laughs> but Carl's Good. not, so I'll be around. Right. Maybe next Excellent. year. Excellent. Well, we should uh, we should share a pint together in Australia. That'll That's my plan. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Thanks, Al. Thank you, guys. All right. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter van.